uh, like to make mention of the fact that this is the third class period of this study in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Uh, you brethren remember, uh, I think it was the first day that we mentioned the fact that we've got a subject and scriptural index. We had hoped to get uh, some copies made of this that we could have given to you, but we didn't. But we've got this subject and scriptural index of this subject, and we've got the uh, scripture references. So I'm offering you an invitation again that if any of you are sufficiently interested, if you're not taking notes or haven't been during the uh, study, feel free to ask me about it and I'll let you uh, copy off of my notes there. But I think you'll really appreciate it if when you get back home and you're sufficiently interested to look further into this subject, you'll have it there to make it so easy to go to this and get your subject and then go right to the places in the scripture where it's discussed. Uh, we we brief mm-hmm. some yes. Maybe somebody's seen this book. The tablet. The this is an excellent yeah. copy, but nobody seems to know mm-hmm. where you get it from now. I've mm-hmm. called uh, Brother Reichen in New Jersey and different places, but mm-hmm. uh, it's written by a brother. I think it's a brother. Gates. C. Gates. Right. It's an excellent copy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. I don't know where you find it, but if anybody knows, I'd appreciate finding out. Well, I, I tell you, brother, we do have a copy of it, and it's been a most excellent source of reference for us, as well as Brother Roberts, the Law of Moses, and other sources. But I believe, well, from what I have heard, uh, I believe that this excellent little pamphlet here, the Tabernacle by this Brother Gates, is not in print. But I can tell you, it is really worth your time to get that. Now, I've really got mine marked up, and it, it, it's real delight to get into it. But if you can get one, this would be a great help to you. Huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brother Bob says we're correct in that, that they have tried to order and couldn't get a hold of them. Did you write another case? Uh, class, last, last class period, we were, uh, we were discussing the court area. And uh, if we are approaching it in the manner in which I hope we are, in which it was intended as the scriptures reveal it to us, we will always look at our subject through the eyes of the God-provided key. Now, if there is any ideas that are interjected into this subject which are not consistent with the symbols and the materials used in this subject, then either I'm in error or you're in error and we're not getting the message intended. And we would like to reemphasize that not only are we attempting to approach it with the idea in mind as Israel experienced it and lived with this tabernacle, but also to draw from it the lessons, the prophetic lessons, which are found revealed in this subject here. And I think we're very fortunate that Brother Ralph Coburn's class, in so many ways, deals very appropriately with uh, a lot of the uh, symbolic and spiritual meanings of this thing as we look at it through Christ. Now, in our subject yesterday in dealing with this court area, uh, we start applying this, uh, this key over here. Let's come back briefly to this doorway or gateway to this open court. And we found there that, number one, the main fabric in the curtained doorway was linen. So we'll just throw it out. The linen in our study has meant what to us? It's righteousness. Then we find that the scriptural... Uh, defining of this and the account of that doorway there, it tells us 
of the linen, but there is needlework. There is needlework in this gateway there, and the needlework has three colors, which you would expect. There is the blue, the purple, and the scarlet. So, in our attempt to reason according to our guide here, in this key, we looked at the linen, we said it was righteousness, and we're also saying that this is a prophecy of Christ's work, as well as the saints. So, what is the blue here on our key? It's heavenliness. Now, fortunately, we brought our old oats, uh, notes, our old notes from last year. Not oats, but notes from last year. And we had, uh, we, we were delighted to go over these last night. We were sitting down there doing a little uh, uh, work on them, and we found these. So we'd like to give you some scriptures to examine this to see as to whether it can be scripturally supported. Now, speaking particularly of the hanging gate or curtain here, uh, if you'll look in John 10:9, and Brother uh, Oscar, I'm going to ask you to read that. Uh, your voice is strong enough to get the benefit. But we're attempting to look at this now as Jesus being the God-provided way in which we draw near under the Yahweh presence. All right, so let's take a look at John 10:9, And those of you who are taking notes, put that down. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. All right, now, uh, Brother Charles Tanner uh, Kelly there, look at John 14.6. John 14.6. Jesus saith unto you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Very fine. All right, let's take a look at Ephesians 2.18. And Harold, you've got a good strong voice. Let's read Ephesians 2.18. Through him we both have access by one spirit of the Father. Through him. Fine. Now, in the blue, let's examine it again. What scriptures, what in the divine record gives us the authority to say that we are correctly applying the key? Let's take a look at the blue. And we said it was heavenliness. It is God's work. It is God's providing. It's the giving of His Son. So let's take a look at Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Brother Jim Gehring. Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Then as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, you are not taken to marry thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Brother Jim, in the reading of that, isn't it firmly established scripturally that Jesus came not by the will of man, not by the cohabitation of Joseph and Mary, but the scripture tells us that the shadow of the Holy Spirit was over her and she conceived from the Spirit and further that he is not the product of the will of man. Let's take a look at Galatians 4.4 4. and Calvin, how about you reading that? Galatians 4.4 4. Galatians 4.4 4. Yeah. <clears throat> But when the fullness of time was come God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law and uh, let's see, Brother Ron Roth, I'm going to ask you to get John 8, 42. John 8, 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. The Lamb of God's providing, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now let's take a look at that color of purple, which we said in our key here, it's royalty or kingship. I thought it was interesting yesterday, just temporarily, uh, we were trying to identify the, uh, the blue and the purple and the red here, and we were trying to see it as it was prefigured in Christ here. And in the purple, even now, even now, at the, at the subject time of even Jesus' ministry in the earth, He is revealed there in the purple. He is the Son of David, if you're taking notes. He is the Son of God, which is even more importantly. And even in His day, the Jews recognized that He was or said or claimed to be the King of the Jews. But let's take some scriptures here. Let's look up Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Brother Bob Tucker. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, again looking at the purple, saying that even then, in the days of his flesh, there was royalty and kingship involved, not only then, but in purpose. Matthew 1.1 1, 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of King David. All right, let's take a look at Matthew 22.42. Let's get some of the young people. Uh, Brother Glenn uh, Bird, how about you reading Matthew 22.42. Matthew twenty-two forty-two. Is is the book is the is the youngster in book? Hmm? Uh, huh? Oh, I'm sorry, Glenn. Sorry. Go ahead, read it, son. Twenty-two forty-two. Read loud enough, Glenn, so we can all get the benefit of it. Say what things would be. What say ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Now, what say ye of him? He's the son of David. Let's look at Matthew 3.17. Uh, Brother Jim Stanton, how about you getting that? Matthew 3.17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Fine. Now, let's take a look at the scarlet, and it was so interesting, and it, it was... It was very gratifying to me. Uh, this brother, Frank Kaiser, came to me after the class there. We were talking here, and let me just for a minute, 
I hope, brethren, that when we have to switch these panels that it's not too distracting to you. But we were talking about... Uh, well, let's see, maybe... Anyway, we were talking about the colors in this gateway there. And over here, we were talking that the scarlet very definitely stands for sins, meaning personal sins. But the scarlet in Bible language also and very appropriately stands for constitutional sin or the Adamic dying nature which all men inherit. So we can see here that Jesus being prophesied or revealed in this court hanging here, he is the door, appropriately the red is there. So we said we can see it in the red, the sin, but how in the world could this apply, that is the sins, and our immediate reaction is, since Jesus did no personal sins, then obviously this could not be applicable. But this brother, exercising his mind and reasoning according to the key, he came up with a thought, and we would like for him to offer it to the class. We thought it was, it was very interesting. Brother Frank, if you will, and speak loud enough so they can hear you. Well, it just since, uh, since Christ was typifying this gate, which uh, was an entrance to the... I guess to go further into right. this court, that uh, Christ did take on him our individual sins. He did have sins of, of, of ours uh, when when we go into Christ and we take on Christ as uh, as our Savior. Right, the sin bearer. Now, now, really, this is very gratifying, and to show you that we're not too far off from thinking about it, when we get into the court and we start taking a look at the burnt offering here, the altar of burnt offering, and the labor and the fact that Jesus is also the altar and the sacrifice, then indeed He did in His work. He bore the sins. His sins were upon us. So He did indeed. And in that sense, this started would apply there. And I hadn't caught that myself. Man. All right, anything else now? Any, any questions or comments? All right. Uh, this, mm -hmm. uh, is, does this fit in there concerning the... Charles has got to be involved. That's, that's whether whether we attempt to, to stretch this thing or to interject it here, yeah. I hadn't thought of it in that context, but obviously it is involved. It is involved. He bore the sins of the law. You know, Very definitely. Yeah. That's right. Very definitely. Not of his own actions, but because of the way in which he was put to death. Right. Now, brethren, take a look if you're taking notes. Uh, take a look at Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. And uh, let's see, Brother Glenn Johnson, read that for us, if you will. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. I really regret that I feel under the pressure of not being able to get through the subject like we'd like to. It's, it's most unfortunate that, uh, that we have to feel the tension of this thing. And, uh, all right, Brother Glenn. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise is part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like it unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to suffer them that are tempted. 
That's fine, Jim. Now, Brother Dennis Childs, I'm going to ask you to read Hebrews 4.15. Read it loud enough so all can hear. Hebrews 4.15, dealing with this color of scarlet and this key here. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Very fine. Uh, Brother Kenny McGowan, how about you getting 1 John 3 5? 1 John 3 5. And I'm going to pick out a sister here now. Is there a sister with a good, strong boy? Brother Jackie? Uh, Brother (laughs) Jackie. Well, so, brethren, really, in a, in a very practical sense, maybe that's not too far-fetched with the liberation is moving so forth at this point. But, but it is Sister Jackie. All right. If you will, Sister Jackie. Did, did I give you the reference here? Give it to Kenny. Well, I'm going to give her those 2 Corinthians 5.21, and then we'll have her read it. All right, Kenny. First John 3.5. And ye know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Yeah. But to take away our sins, so indeed this is consistent with what Brother Frank Kaiser saw in this thing. All right, Sister Jackie, if you will. Second Corinthians five twenty one. But he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Right. For he has made him to be sin for us. So obviously we're on the correct way of interpreting our uh, our provided key here. <laughs> now, brethren. Again, being very conscious of the time, let's immediately go into the courts and take a look, a closer look here of the offer burnt offering. First of all, just to let you get a good look at another thing I saw Brother Jim doing up here, I would really be very pleased if those of you are sufficiently interested to come up and handle these panels and look at them. I don't mean dirty them, but look at them and enjoy the benefit of closer, really, because uh, I don't know what it looks like from the back there, but I know it must be more difficult to see the details than it would be for those who are sitting up to the front. But they're very fine panels, and again, like I say, a sister 80 years old, it shows you how you can serve in the truth there. But this is a very interesting altar here, and let's go to the Scriptures now and get the description that is given to us there. Right, right. Brother Jim, let's see. Uh, Can we put it over here for the time being? All right, let's take a look at the scriptural uh, recording of the information about this altar. Uh, Put in your notes if you're taking it. The altar burnt offering, the complete descriptions can be found in Exodus 27, 1 through 8. The altar burnt offering, that's your subject, your scriptural index, Exodus 27, 1 through 8. Also, a companion reference, almost verbatim, Exodus 38, 1 through 7. Exodus 38, 1 through 7. <clears throat> all right, let's all turn there, brethren, and take a look at Exodus 27, 1 through 8. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square. And the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. 
his horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass, and thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans, all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass, and thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof, and thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow, hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. Again, we say that those same instructions are repeated in Exodus 38, 1 through 7. So according to the information given us, let's try to look at it now and examine it here. Uh, first of all, it told us that it was made of shit of wood or a case of wood. And in our key here, according to biblical language, wood and trees and so forth are mentioned many times in Bible language, and wood always stands for human nature for human nature. So we've got wood in this furnishing here. So we know in some way it's identified with human nature. What's the other thing that's prominent in the altar? What other material? Brass. Right. And what is brass? Sin flesh. So whatever's involved in the study and the examination of this altar of burnt offerings, it's wood and brass and it has to do with human nature and sin's flesh. Now, Let's take a look at the size of it. I thought it was very interesting, the size of that altar. Uh, by the way, you'll notice I've got a lot of information on the back. I'm going to turn it around and I can read from the back. The size of that altar, they've got it in cubits, but the size of it is seven and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet high. Now, brethren, by way of illustration to help us to appreciate the size of that altar, as, these, uh, as Aaron and his sons dealt with it and carried out all of those sacrifices there in that courtyard. Uh, I think last year we even used this illustration, but basically, my foot's not quite 12 inches, but we're going to step off here. This comes very close to the size of it, seven and a half feet. Then if I would walk out that way and then come back and join it, you can see we're dealing with a good-sized altar, and on top of that, it's roughly about up to my armpits. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take a look again at that altar. There are no steps to the altar. There's a ramp, or what we would call an incline, but there are no steps. Right now, anybody that was in our class last year, or anybody studied, why is it a ramp, or an incline, and not steps? All right, brethren, I'll tell you now. I've got some information on the back. Let's just find it. I know I've got it here somewhere. Uh, mm, you mean to tell me? That. We'll you that what was that? Leviticus 10th chapter. All right, let's take a look at Leviticus, the 10th chapter. 
No. Look, I tell you, look at Exodus. I've got it here on the back. Look at Exodus 20:26, brethren. Exodus 20:26, and Chuck, I'm going to ask you to read that. Now, again, brethren, keeping faith with the way it's described to us, and as the way that these inspired workmen made it, there was no steps, but there is this ramp. So let's take a look now at that Exodus 20. 26 as a reason as to why there are no steps leading up to that altar. And obviously, uh, there would have to be some way to get up there to uh, carry out the uh, sacrifices there. Neither shall thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. All right, and Brother Raymond, I'm going to ask you to look at Exodus 28.42. Those of you taking that, Exodus 28.42. And then we want to read you something from Brother Borland's book, Law and Grace. Now we've already established, and we're going to establish further, that God says, Thou shalt not go up to my altars by six. So let's get that, Brother Raymond, and read it loud enough. Thou shalt make them let it drink to cover their the they shall now, I'm going to ask the question of someone in the class, Gene. As we pursue God's Word and we become more familiar with it and handling it, what is the impression that we instinctively get when nakedness is mentioned in the Scripture? Sin. And isn't it a fact that nakedness basically causes shame? Causes shame. All right, now, with this in mind, and God having created man and knowing how man reasons and thinks, and knows how corrupt he becomes, these are their instructions to Israel. Remember, they eventually, after this is over with the 40 years, eventually under Joshua, they're going into a land of several different nations, and all of them are completely corrupt and steeped in idolatry and every kind of perversion. And this Almighty God, in His foreknowledge, Knowing the type of land that the children would go into, and knowing those inhabitants in there, he makes it quite plain that what Israel does is a total rejection of the practices of these people. So from the, uh, the book, Law and Grace, and page 70, now maybe some of you want to take that down because it's very interesting, but Brother Boiling says, dealing with this nakedness issue here, and I'm going to read uh, from here, Neither shalt thou go up thy steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Those organs which enable man to procreate might be regarded as endowing him with the same creative power as God himself. A notion akin to the perverted one, which formed the basis of the revolting fertility cults of those later days. Such cults were abhorrent to the Creator, and no altar of His was to be, even in the most incidental way, profaned by those who ministered at it. As it were, the altars at which pagan priesthoods ministered, often in the nude to the fiendish gods of their own devising. Now, brethren, this is the benefit and the blessings and the joy that you get when you get interested in a subject and you start just searching. This is a real jewel of mine. If that isn't a good apt description or reason why God forbade Israel to go up on his altars by steps. Now, brethren, 
keeping in mind how the priests were dressed, and those garments came weighing down to the ankles, you can see that if they went up on the altar, which they did, if they went up to the altar by this ramp and not by steps, you would not see their legs. It would be unnecessary because it is a gradual incline. But had these priests in those long garments tried to negotiate steps on that altar, the nakedness of their legs would have been seen, and any of their ministering there would have been immediately rejected. In fact, I think we are saving saying that they would have been struck dead because in many instances in this tabernacle worship, it is they are reminded, lest thou die. So I don't think we're speaking out of context here. In fact, there may be references that would bear directly on that. But it's a point well taken. Now, another interesting thing. Not till after I'd spent my second year in the study of this did I realize that this ramp itself is misleading. Now, you brethren remember that I said to you earlier that there are some things in these panels. In my attempt to work with Sister Medlin, she lives 32 miles from me, and we had discussed certain things, and then I'd have to go back home, and I might not see her for two or three weeks. So we didn't work closely together in the fact that I was always there at her elbow. So later, I found out, you look at this, and it's the same color as the altar, is it not? It's the same color as the altar, so we say, well, it's brass. And the impression you get from our panel is, is that that ramp is a part of the altar, and with the staves here, and if you've paid close attention to the description, the staves on that altar so that they might pick it up and bear it because this camp was on the move for 40 years there. But the staves don't go through the ramp. So if you pick that altar up with those staves, and that's the description given in, in, in the Exodus there, the ramp would be left sitting there, would it not? So there's something wrong with our family. This is the wrong impression, and we want to correct it. What actually happened, and further, I went did more studying the thing, and what did I find out? I found out that the description of the altar is seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half. That's the altar. It says nothing about the method or the means of which they went up by it. But further examination of God's altars back in the patriarchal age, not using metals, what did they use? Dirt and stones. So, brethren, we've got our answer. We've got our answer. And what a pleasure it was to investigate this. We've got our answer. Any time that that tabernacle moved and the Levites, the Levites packed it up on those ox carts and they started moving, they didn't have a ramp, as you see portrayed here. They had the altar. But when they sat down, when the cloud hovered over the space where God says, Here shall my tabernacle be for the time being, they started setting up or erecting the tabernacle. And this altar was placed again in the courtyard, positioned as you see it in this uh, panel over here. And in that instance, the, what they did, and there's no question about it, they gathered from the earth of the surroundings, the stones and so forth, and they built the ramp on it. Because, brethren, they didn't leap upon it to make a point. Their nakedness sure enough would have been seen. So there's some way they had to get upon it. It wasn't steps, and they didn't jump upon it. So the only thing they did is buy ramp, and there's no question in my mind, unless someone's got an alternative opinion here, it was made of dirt, a dirt incline. It would always be there wherever they moved it. You'd have it ready to bring it up there. And in my judgment, I think this is exactly what they did. And if we were there in the camp, I believe we would have seen exactly that.
what is it, half time on thing? I can see we're not making the no. <coughs> Now, brethren, in our discussion again of the uh, of the altar of burnt offering, it told us that it's four and a half feet high, and there's a peculiar kind of description here. Let me see it now if we can find it in our chapter, Exodus 27. Uh, it speaks about a brazen net, a brazen net, and you get the wrong impression on a brazen net, and it says it comes up to about uh, something about the compass of it underneath the altar and so forth. But what you have here, if you look closely at this, that is broad enough on that altar the way it's made that the priests got up there and they walked completely around the perimeter of that altar. Now, if we take a look at what was offered there and the size of it tells us that it wasn't small animals like rabbits or something like that in that sense, it tells us that bullocks, you've got a real piece of, uh, of offering here. You've got bullocks You've got goats and sheep. You do have fire, even small ones, depending on what the purpose the person had in mind, coming to the gate of the tabernacle to make his offering. And by the way, brethren, while it comes to my mind, any offering, any offering made on the altar of burnt offering was always voluntary. I don't see anybody shaking their head, so maybe you say, well, the brother, I guess, knows. All offerings of that were voluntary. Someone says, yeah, I hear you, Anna. Someone says, give me a scripture. Yeah, give me a scripture. All right. Let me read here. I know it's there. Yeah, that's right, Anna. We're, just, we're making a point, and Anna takes it on all that. But in other words, that's, that's the way we should do. All right. But you notice that little star we said, Waymark? Very important thing in my judgment of the study of the altar. The burnt offering was all, always voluntary. Its total consumption on the altar was its distinguishing feature. It represented the complete consumption of sin nature. Look at Leviticus 1, verse 3. And I'll ask you to read it since I put you on the spot. Leviticus 1, verse 3. Now you can run out other references, but this will suffice. I hate to be under the pressure of not having time. Really, brethren, I really do. If his offering did burnt offering sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now it's interesting. There were many types of burnt offerings brought there. And a man offers it, if you can think of ourselves being in the camp, and very definitely we should because we're Israelites, we voluntarily want to give some expression to a need approach unto deity. And this altar provided for that. So sometimes it would be a bullock, sometimes a sheep or a goat, sometimes a fowl. Some, some people weren't as, uh, as affluent, we'd say, as others. But whatever the purpose is, he comes there having a desire to approach unto deity through the priesthood to give expression maybe of gratitude, the seeing of his need of uh, God's forgiveness. So he comes there with his offering, and there is descriptions in the scriptures here. In fact, if you want to take it briefly, let me get my uh, glasses on. Uh, if you look at, put down Leviticus 1, 1 through 17, you have a detailed description of all the animals that were ever offered upon that altar. Leviticus 1, 1 through 17. 
And then you can put there out the side their sacrifices, and then you'll know what you're, you're dealing with there. All right, another thing that's already been brought out. The fire on the altar, Oscar, I'll ask you, there was a time when the altar was not made, then it was made, then it was begin to be used. Where did the fire come from? It did, indeed. Oscar, it came from God. And after that, these fires were never permitted to go out upon this altar. Had anyone, had anyone come down there in the dead of night, so to speak, you would have seen the continual burning on the altar. Continually, day after day after day, there was a replenishing. It was never allowed to go out, the, the, this, the burning on this uh, altar here. If you want another thing and help you on a thing, and some of you might want to investigate it, if you want to take a, an interesting side journey on altars in the Scriptures, which we've done, and we've got it here, so we've had the blessings of being able to refer to it if we ever lost our notes, just put out there the subject altars and put pages 209 and 210 in the Law of Moses. And Brother Roberts has some very fine things to say about the altars as they're utilized in the uh, in Israel and in the patriarchal age even. Altars. Uh, the Law of Moses, pages 209 through 10. Yes? How was the fire kept burning? The sacrifice? The sacrifice is that Phyllis? The sacrifice. Now, but, well, yeah, yeah, well, let me put it. Who would like to answer that? They continued to put the wood on the altar. That's another thing, brethren. That's another thing. And I know some of you will remember. If you don't, you will when we make mention of it. Look at the grating here at the bottom of that big altar. Now, we read in the thing there, didn't it say that there were five pans, flesh hooks, all of the things that was necessary that the priests might effectively carry out their ministry here? Well, you look at that grading. Now, here's the idea I had, and I think it's a very natural assumption, but closer investigation told me what the answer was. I looked at it, and I said, well, that grating is removable, and that's what the Scripture says. So I said, they stoked that thing with wood, as it were, underneath. That sounds reasonable. And let the fire come up through it. Now, that sounds reasonable. It comes up through it, and it consumes whatever's placed upon it. But that's not the way it was at all. Further investigation showed us that always, that whatever the wood or the, it was put on the top of this grating here. It was put on the top there, and so was the sacrifice on the top of that. But the ashes fell down. And the ashes, right, Harold, but the ashes fell down through that brass or bronze grating down here, and periodically the priest took away one, I think, I'm not sure that I'm saying east side. It, it gives it in there. It's marvelous, the detail. But it tells us that they removed one side of that grating, and that was the way that they got the ashes. Austin? You know, the most amazing thing, thing, you know, I think, that the law of Moses is kept there's no foul odors anywhere in Right. That's very true. And I tell you again, brethren, I think we've gotten the point, but we do feel that it's pertinent. Don't you become conscious of detail when we're done? Aren't you becoming it? I found myself looking at words that you really become conscious of detail. Now, that's with good reason. That's reason God had revealed it like that. Suppose Moses was rather careless in the way he heard the instructions given on the mount. And he came down and he talked to those 
who were given the wisdom to build that. And he said, gee, I forgot half of the pattern. I think we've made the point. I've forgotten half of the pattern. I'm not sure how this thing. The point is, the detail was given. It was to be remembered. And if anything had been done not according to God's specifications and according to the pattern, it would have been no value. It would have never been acceptable to God. I don't care how many sacrifices would have been offered on that altar. If they had left one stay out, if they had made it ten feet instead of seven and a half feet, it would have been rejected. The total thing is, it's according to God's word, not according to human reasoning. Now, another thing I had in my mind, I said, there's the bullocks. And I thought, can you imagine the burden of the priest taking a carcass of a bullock? And we're not talking, didn't say a calf. We're talking about a mature beast taking the carcass of that thing, going up that ramp, and placing it upon him. And this is a natural assumption. After all, the size of that thing should certainly accommodate a bullock. But further reading showed me that they always cut it up in parts. Big parts, mind you. But if you will, please, brethren, again, the priest could take a shoulder of it and put it on the shoulder and go up. Then they laid it in pieces. Now, if you've got a goat, it's a little more simple. It's not as much. But the point we're making is, is that they divided it and cut it up and they brought it up here and put it on the altar. Now, there's another interesting thing. That one offering, that burnt offering, which was called the whole burnt offering, and that tells us right there that it was wholly consumed. There were other burnt offerings which they weren't consumed. They were cooked. And then the priests partook of the sacrifices. What did we get out of that, Florence? A whole burnt offering was consumed, nothing but ashes. But many other the sacrifices, the priests actually ingested it. They ate of the sacrifices. Hardly, hardly uh, a natural vision of the priest. It's hardly a, uh, an indication that uh, the. Uh, Speak louder, Florence. I can hear you, but I don't think they can. I'm not really sure. And for talking of the altar, this morning was the partaking of the word. This altar is a very personal way of partaking of the altar. Now, if I look like that, I'm, I'm being discourteous to Sister Florence. I know that we're limited, so but they partook of the altar, and that's all right, Alma. Indeed it did. I was going to ask, does anybody see any semblance in the memorial service? Yes. Right. And brethren, absolutely, Christ is that altar. Christ is that altar. Are we consistent? Did He bear sin's flesh? Indeed He did. Did He have the word or human nature? Indeed He did. Now, an interesting point, brethren. In the description it tells us there were four horns on the altar and it was one with it. Now in that language as the Jews used it when they said there were four horns and one with it it meant that they were an actual permanent part of that altar. Now I know we ask what might the horns represent and what would have been the practical utility of the horns on the altar? Didn't the altar, didn't we say earlier in the description in Exodus, did it not say in there that it was four square? Brethren, did not God say, set the camp four square? What does Ezekiel say? What does Zachariah say? What does the book of Revelation say? Square? All right, we've got the altar here. Put a symbolism here. All right, the four horns 
The four horns of Zacharias that represents the work of the saints. A militant thing, horns. You can win these weapons without weapons that are consistent all the way through. So we have the horns of the altar, and indeed, in the furnishings, we find that the saints, as well as Christ, are represented in this altar here. It's very true that we're according to the, the scripture that we're given there. Now, any questions you want to affect or uh, comment? A lot of times you all are uh, uh, instrumental in triggering off something in my mind, so... Well, the moment is for Oh, I'm sorry. Again, I want to ask you for some scriptural reference to this human nature. What he said, looking at, and he said, All right, I accept the fact that wood is human nature, but then it says in the scripture that it was shittim wood or acacia wood, and it is a fact that scholars know that that was a hard, durable wood. And I can tell you another thing about some of those woods they can be very highly polished and a very beautiful thing. And you say, Well, is human nature very beautiful? Well, human nature, not only in the context of the sin nature or mortal, but what about somebody says, she has a general nature. He's a good man. Now, if you look at it in this context, you can see, but in answer what he said there, brethren, he said, all right, but the wood still is hard and it's durable, but it does not say that it was imperishable, right? It does not say it was imperishable. Even the tabernacle, it says it was a thing of beauty. And there's things used in there. It says the incense. But it was perishable, wasn't it? What about the bread on the show table? Was it perishable? It was. But it was used in there, wasn't it? And that gives us a thought. We, we're going to get to it. Let's look at it. If you look at the holy place, if you look at the holy place, it tells us that there's the table of showbread or the bread of the faces, there's the lampstand, and then there's that small golden altar before the veil. If you look at what's utilized there, the spices and the oil and the bread, they continually have to be replenished. It shows us in the days of Jesus' ministry, in the days of his mortality, that's the service. The oil, the incense, and the bread. But if you go with Aaron, who is a type of Christ, if we go with him into the Most Holy and look inside the ark, what do you find? The golden pot of manna, the manna's preserved, the manna that was preserved, that had been eaten in the wilderness, it was preserved in there. You have the uh, Aaron's rod that budded. It was kept there for years in that budded state. And uh, the other one was the table of the law. This is symbolic of something more permanent. In the most holy place, you're looking at that which pertains to the uh, ministry in the days of immortality. I don't think we've left anybody, have we? I mean, we didn't want to... We, we thought that that might be as good an opportunity as any to interject that. Now, is there anything else in this altar that might strike you that you want to know about? 
because we're going to get to the laser in a minute. Anybody, anything about it that's, uh, and by the way, after Alright, Brother Jim. The horns for practical purpose, it was our understanding, now I'm not sure, uh, Brother Jim, you might be able to think of something where there's a definite reference. If I wanted to go on and on, I guess we could find it. But it occurred to me that the horns not only were symbolic of something, but everything in the furnishings was practical, and it was to be utilized. And so you look at it, and they wouldn't it be natural if you've got the priest working along or on the top of this perimeter there, walking along this, they're adjusting that which is to be sacrificed. Is it completely inconceivable that a shoulder of a beef or a bullock might have been temporarily hung on that as they were adjusting the pieces? Think about what we're trying to say here. Is it inconceivable that the priest, having several pieces of that carcass, that he's arranging it on the altar, and maybe one or two pieces are hanging on those hooks or horns until they can place it like they want it? Now that makes sense. That makes sense. Keep in mind what this brother said. And it occurred to me there might be something there that's strapped across it, but the scriptures do not say so. I'm just saying the scriptures do not say so. All right. I can't stop. I can't stop. There's something in the Psalms or somewhere about binding my sacrifice on the altar. Horns of the altar. That's good, Lord. That's good. All right, fine, Lord. That's good. Binding my sacrifice on the altar. Well, that just completely does away with the thought that I had. We won't even interject it, but it will hide. Uh, well, not hide. Bama? Two seconds. The beautiful thing, Very good. Very good. Now there is the advantage again of brothers and sisters studying the Word. Studying the Word. Alright, anything else? Because we're going to move on. We're going to look at that later. Briefly, is this the altar that the criminal, or the supposed criminal, or the, the uh, person who committed manslaughter, uh, what is it, involuntary manslaughter, ran and grabbed hold of this for refuge until he could get away? Or Oh, this, I think they went into the tabernacle itself, didn't they? The horns of the altar. I was thinking, I, I don't know, Harold, but I'm getting the impression they might have gone in. It, it might have been more accessible. It might have been this. I don't know the answer, but it would be. Well, I think it's 18 and 27, I think, what we're looking for. All right, well, look here now at the altar. For someone there, it would be easier to get to this than it would inside there, so it may be here. But now, we don't want to waste too much time here. I want to get to the labor. Let's take a look at that labor. And brethren, on the labor... Uh, we find the description of it, and it's interesting, there's not, there is very little said about the labor in the record. It's interesting, and we caught this. Look at Exodus 38.8. Exodus 
Very interesting that God would reveal this to us about this labor. And he made the labor of brass, and the foot of it, and the foot of it of brass, of the looking glasses of the women, assembling, which assembled at the door at the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, brethren, looking at that, you know, they didn't have glass as we know it, but they did have polished or burnished bronze. And in this sense, a lady in Israel could have looked at herself. And no doubt they did, because it says looking glasses. And that's what it is made of, is this bronze or brass. But interesting enough, the ladies of Israel, the women of Israel, were told to bring these looking glasses, and out of it was cast this solid labor of brass. There's something else here. It says labor, and then it says the foot. Says the foot. Now keep that in mind. It says labor and the foot. I thought, well, the foot is the base, but there's something more involved here. Let's take a look at Exodus 30, 18 through 21. Exodus 30, 18 through 21. Thou shalt also make a labor of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Or when they come near the altar to minister to burnt offerings made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not, and it shall be for a statue forever to them, even to him and to his seed, throughout all their generations. Now, I want you to take a look at that labor there. It says that they washed their hands and their feet. Now, if it's true, the principle is sound, and God says, I will not tolerate nakedness in my priest. And if he said, Thou shalt not go up to my altars by steps, so this nakedness would not be seen, then obviously if they were to wash their hands, but also the feet, you cannot in any conceivable way think of any of, the, of, of Aaron or his sons going to that labor. Oh, would you hold that up here, Dennis? Somehow we've got to get some assistance here. Hold that up there. I, we can imagine, we can visualize them coming there, washing their hands in the labor. That's what they were instructed to do. Behind the world, thinking into the context of nakedness, how could they possibly, that's another thing, we're not told the sign, but how could they possibly have gotten their feet in that without showing their naked or lifting their skirts? So looking carefully at it, this seems to be the true thing, that there was water in the foot. It's not just a base, the water's in the foot, and this way, being a shallow pan there, and they could put their feet in it without showing their nakedness. Now, brethren, that's my understanding of it, and obviously we know that we are correct. There was no nakedness there. They washed their feet, and they certainly didn't put them up in this. But it's interesting we are not given the signs of that, but consistently, according to God. If they couldn't show their nakedness here, wouldn't it seem rather odd that they could show it over here? You've destroyed the whole thing of what God's talking about. The pattern is consistent throughout. Thank you, David.
Alright, it says they washed their hands. Again, those of us are exercising the Spirit work. When the Bible mentions hands and the way that it mentions it in both the Old Testament or the New, wherever you find it, what usually do you think of? What do you do with hands? You work. What do you do with feet? You walk. Well, if therefore the priest, and this is a prophecy of Christ's work and a prophecy of His brethren, if therefore they're washing their hands, it means that we must be busy in the truth. Is it right? And is there anything in the Scripture that says anything there has to be a faithful walk? Yeah. Now, brethren, it's obvious. We don't need to belabor the point. We can get Scripture going, but we've got to move on. Now, is there any comments or questions on this? But it's interesting. Brethren, again, showing you how we become conscious of the detail. It did not say that Aaron and his sons washed in the labor. It didn't say they got out. It didn't immerse themselves in it. It told us that they washed their hands and their feet. And obviously it was meant to tell us something there. Now, anything else? Now, an interesting thing about the labor, you look at it and you think of the water, and you say, well, somehow or another, that's got to be identified or associated with baptism. How many of you think it has to do with baptism? Well, don't be afraid. I'm going to... I mean, either you do or don't. It would seem reasonable that it has something to do with baptism. Well, interestingly enough, brethren, again, looking at the altar inside the court, did you not hear us say in our study that not only the materials of the tabernacle become more precious and beautiful in workmanship as you get closer to Yahweh's presence, did we not say in our description of that you know what's happened to me, Brother Ryan? Lost it. Lost it. Just a minute. Sorry, brethren. We're subject to these things. Isn't that interesting? And I didn't need to be pretending. It's gone. It's gone. Baptism, right. Baptism. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Oscar, thank you very much. Right. All right, brethren. Obviously, then, sitting that up there again, it tells us about the position, the position of these furnishings. You think that the Levites just says they had this heavy load, and it was heavy. They brought it in there, and they said, well, set it down here. I can't proceed any further. You think that that might... In other words, brethren, we're stagnant point. Is it there just from... That's where we'll put it, or did God say it? In the description there, it tells us where these were placed. So entering into the doorway, which is through Christ, and it is by sacrifice, then I'm saying, brethren, does it not suggest to us that baptism is involved in this? This is the sacrifice that we make. This is the, this is the first order. This is the gateway. Now, with that thought in mind, and we're not asking you to accept or reject it, but I want to read from Brother Roberts, uh, The Law of Moses. But just keep that thought in mind. All right, in Brother Roberts, The Law of Moses, I'm reading from page 152, if any of you want to follow this out later, if you want to study it. Life after introduction to Christ is therefore a probation. Notice, life after introduction to Christ. This is the lesson of the labor. It's the life after having been introduced into Christ. This is the lesson of the labor. 
It is not enough to have God's righteousness declared in sacrifice and endorsed in baptism into the death of Christ. We must wash in the labor. We must conform to the exhortation. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings. Isaiah 1.16 Literally, this is done by subjecting the mind to the influence of the Word of God. The Word of God is always spoken of as the cleansing power. John 15.3 Psalms 119.9 Ephesians 5.26 Now I'm assuming that most of you have access to Brother Robert's The Law of Moses and pages 152 and 153 is where we're reading from. That is if it's of this edition that we have here. Uh, and in actual spirit it is to be found so. Kept clean by the word, we shall be qualified for admission, admission into the holiest, in the change to the incorruptible. Thus the analogy of the Mosaic parable, brethren, thus the analogy of the Mosaic parable from the camp to the tents of the Levites, to the, the tents of Aaron and Moses, to the doorway into this here all the way through thus in the mosaic parable or analogy here to the realities in Christ is complete his brother caught that the process of drawing men from alienation to glorification is clearly discernible in all of its appointments what we have involved here number one if an individual begins to consider God's invitation there has to be something in him that causes it. Humility of mind, circumcision of heart, enters the Christ's gateway on receiving the gospel, offers the Christ's sacrifice in being baptized into the death of Christ on the altar, washes in the Christ's labor in coming under the purifying power of his commandments, enters the preliminary holy place of the divine tabernacle in becoming a member of the body of Christ to radiate the candlestick of light in the holy place of the truth and offer the incense sacrifice of praise continually, eat the bread of the showbread of Israel's hope, wait for the manifestation of the glory of God in the great day of that one month when all things will be reconciled, will be gathered together in the holiest under one head, even Christ, and the true tabernacle of God will be with men, and there shall be no more curse, and no more pain, and no more death. Isn't that good? See what the goodies you get when you're studying, you're interested in a subject? How much time do we have? It's about it, isn't it? About three minutes. All right. Well, let's... Any questions? Okay, Al. You have the labor positioned off to one side a little bit. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the older picture. You're not talking about here. Right. Here. Yeah, right. Are they yeah. on the board? <laughs> okay, brethren, I can't see which one. This one here. All right, Al. What now? Scripture says it's placed between the altar and the tabernacle. Well, they're kind of offset there. Is there a reason for that? All right, I can't be it. I didn't read that one right. Yeah. All right, look here. Brother Brick, I don't know how far we're going to get into this, but look at that. This is another good part. 
you grab and look at that, and according to the scripture record, which one of these panels indicated the truest one of what's happened there? It's right here. Now, if we'd been with our sister and did this, and it's not meant to be a negative criticism, we would have caught it. But it was already done after we But there, there again, I think it emphasizes what we're done, the detail of the thing here. But this is the true thing. Between the altar and the tabernacle, this is the true thing. As, he, as Brother Al called it there, this is offset. So again, we've learned something there. It really forcibly impresses it upon our minds. We're very much conscious of detail in this class, without a doubt. That's a All right, brother. Narrow way. Huh? That's a great narrow way. Right, right. Now, brethren, Lord willing, tomorrow we want to take a look at the tabernacle itself, the Hebrew word meaning mishkan, and we want to take a look at the tent or covering over the tabernacle, which is the old hell.